It is good to see you guys this morning. If you have never, ever, ever been on a mission trip, I really want to encourage you to um, check out what's happening in Bangladesh. Gary O'Neill is going to be leading a team out there. Uh, you don't want to miss that. As, uh, as you can see from the video, just incredible ministry, holistic uh, view of ministry that is dealing with the spiritual and the physical needs of people all around the world. So I hope you can go and be a part of that. Um, as we get into uh, our worship this morning, I want to invite you to pray with me uh, for Pastor Robert Morris. As many of you may have been following this past week, Pastor Robert Morris is a senior pastor of uh, Gateway Church, actually the largest church in all of Dallas and uh, probably one of the largest churches in the entire world, but right down the street from us here. And uh, you know that this past week, he's been experiencing a lot of medical problems. Um, I think it happened right after Easter, went in for a surgery, and um, there's been complication after complication after complication. And uh, this past week, I think in the past few days, he's turned the corner and God's been bringing some healing to him. Uh, praise God. But if you've been following along with that, he's a brother in Christ and uh, just a, an incredible God, a godly man. I want to pray for him and just pray that God would continue to heal him, give him strength, and build up uh, his church and his influence here in Dallas, too. And so I'm going to invite you to pray with me for that. Um, Father, we love you. Uh, we, we give you praise and we give you glory today. We recognize that you alone are God. Uh, you have all the power, the authority in the world. God, today I want to continue to lift up my brother, Robert Morris, and I want to pray that your spirit would bring him healing. God, that you would um, put together his body again, that you would restore the strength that's been taken. Father, that you would continue to uh, let him walk out okay. Father, even as I pray that, I'm just reminded of the different people this past week who didn't get an answer to prayer like that. My friends Jason and Tiffany uh, grieving the loss of their son this past week. God, would your spirit be with them? Or would you bring them comfort? Would you bring them compassion? Just an awareness of your presence right now in the middle of their pain. God, for all of us, any of us that walked in here today with ailments and fears and pains, and God, I pray that your spirit would meet them too. And God, that uh, we, we do confess you are the God who has all the power and authority in the world, and we ask you to come and to speak to us this morning. Meet us right where we are today, God. We love you. We give you everything that we're doing today. I pray, Spirit, that you prepare us for the message that you would have for us. God, that we would be a humble body of believers here uh, that are willing to surrender to you in all things and that you would have your way in our gathering, that it would be all for the glory and praise of your name. That's uh, in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen and amen. Um, it is good to be back again with you guys. This is the first time in a, in a long time. Um, we are in a, we're kind of nearing the end of a series we started back in the fall uh, called The Big Story, where we are going through exactly that, the big story of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, all the major themes and stories that tie the one big story of Scripture all together. This morning, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, so if you have your Bibles want to go ahead and turn there, uh, you can do that. If you do not, no big deal, I'm going to be putting everything up on the screen, and i uh, got a lot of slides for us this morning, and so uh, if you're a note taker, bring your pen and, uh, and get ready for that, but uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7. I thought we'd end on a pretty fun passage this morning. Uh, probably the second most quoted passage in all of Scripture, right? Anybody want to guess what that might actually be? Uh, I'll give you a little hint. Like, you don't need to be a Christian to know it, and you can actually uh, not even believe in the authority of Scripture to quote this all the time, right? Judge not lest you be judged. Am I right about that? Anybody else heard this like 8,000 times on TV by people who are not believers or even uh, acknowledge the authority of Scripture or anything like that? 
uh, like all the time. Like you don't need to, you don't even need to be a believer to, to love this passage. Judge not lest you be judged. I'll never forget uh, a number of years ago, I was sitting in an uh, ethics class at Texas A&M and was actually uh, pretty good friends with the president of the, uh, of the atheist club at the time. We happened to be in all kinds of philosophy classes and we loved, we had a lot of similar interests sort of. Um, and, uh, Anyway, we just have a, have a way of just being in the same class all the time. And so we were in the middle of this ethics class, and we were debating all these different things. And um, the topic that day, we, was, we were debating parenting, which is always a great thing uh, for 20-year-olds to do who, do not have, who are not parents, right? For some reason, like, this, this whole topic came up, and, it, and my friend was making this case uh, that parents are the most judgmental people in the world because what they do is they impose their morality on their young children long before those children even have the opportunity to think for themselves or to know or to be able to come up to the, with these decisions for themselves, right? Uh, they're the most judgmental people in the world. Like, can you imagine that for a second? I mean, think about that. I mean, you who are parents, I mean, is that ever going to go well? I mean, can you imagine? I'm like, okay, Caleb, I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't be torturing Fluffy right now, but I'm just going to hope and pray that you kind of figure this thing out right? Like, has that ever worked out well? Are your kids born naturally moral? Do they want to do, do they want to naturally obey you? Like, their first word out of their mouth is no, right? Like, before they know your name, they know, nope, nope, you don't get to tell me what to do. Like, that's never a good idea. But anyway, in the middle of this case, uh, parents are the most um, judgmental people on the planet. Uh, He quotes Jesus in this passage, Matthew chapter 7, judge not lest you be judged. Parents, you just need to heed Jesus' warning, judge not lest you be judged. And I wanted to be like, you don't even believe that that's true. Like, you don't even, <laughs> anyway. And so we had a lot of fun with that whole thing. But, uh, by the way, like, Bill Maher it does this all the time, too. And you see this on TV. You'll bring a Christian uh, leader up on stage. You'll be talking about some sort of a moral, su- a political subject or something like that. They'll be getting into the heat of the matter. And then all of a sudden, he's going to be like, who in the world are you to judge, right? Don't you remember what Jesus said to you? Judge not, lest you be judged. And, of course, the whole crowd is kind of going, ooh, burn, you got him, and, and all this kind of a thing. And... And we love that verse, right? We love it because it seems like Jesus is validating two of our culture's most valued, uh, highest values today. Number one, that that religion is a personal matter that should never be shared with anyone else. Uh, But number two, that morality is, is a subjective matter of preference and not an objective matter of truth. And so if that's true, like you can see where the tension is uh, with this passage, right? If, if morality is only a matter of preference and religion is something that should only be kept private, then what right does anyone have to contradict anyone else uh, in their personal decisions or correct any of their behavior? And so the passage that we're going to be looking at today uh, is easily one of the more popular passages in all of Scripture, and, it's, and it is for good reason, right? I mean, I mean, they, they do have a point. Like, there's, there's a problem within our own tribe here, within Christianity, where we can be excessively judgmental. I, I referenced the book by David Kinnaman last week called Unchristian, 2012. Um, was doing all this research among the millennial generation. They determined that about 85% of, non, uh, of millennial non-believers believe that cri- most Christians are hypocritical. Uh, 90% of them said that we were excessively judgmental. Right, and so it's not without good reason. I mean, there's there's something for us to be gleaning here and from to be learning from this subject matter. But it's not just popular; it's also one of the most incredibly misunderstood passages that we that we read about in all of Scripture. And that's what I want to get at today. In Matthew chapter seven. What in the world does Jesus mean when he says, "Judge not, lest you be judged"? 
So if you have your, your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn there, Matthew chapter 7. And again, if you don't, no big deal. I'm going to be putting these passages up on the screen. Um, I want to remind you kind of where we are in the big story. We've turned the page from the Old Testament to the New. Uh, I want to remind us exact same God from the Old to the New, even though it may look a little bit differently. Same God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit was there in the beginning and is there in the New Testament also. Uh, exact same mission. He is redeeming the world through his covenant people, uh, the nation of Israel. A brand new covenant that is about to take place uh, at the finished life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're about to get in that in the next coming weeks here. Um, Where we are in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Easily his most famous sermon that he ever preaches. And the context uh, of his audience is a really, really interesting audience. We remember in in Matthew chapter 4... Jesus' earthly ministry has just begun. It says he's traveling throughout all of Galilee. He's preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And it says that uh, the news about him spread throughout all of Syria. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases and those suffering severe pain. The demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan ended up following him. And so largely that is who is in attendance in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's the Batokos. It is the poor in spirit. It is the outcasts of society. Uh, They're not the only ones that are there that day. Remember, this is a culture of haves and have-nots. Not much of a middle class here. And so you've got the Patokos, the poor in spirit, but you've also got the haves or kind of the the social elites. These are the political elites. These are the religious elites that are there paying attention to Jesus that day too. And remember this, like from the time that the Old Testament ends, 400 years of silence between the end of Malachi uh, before Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 1, 400 years of silence. And during those 400 years of silence, Uh, Israel has learned their lesson. They're not falling into rampant idolatry anymore, right? There is all, I mean, God God got their attention. They're not falling into idolatry anymore. But what takes place in these 400 years, they start choking to death the law of God. And what creeps into their worship is all kinds of hypocritical, uh, self-righteous religious practice that's void of anything that's real. And so that's exactly what Jesus is attacking here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's why I want to pick it up here in, in chapter 7, verse, verse 1. Here's what he says. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured unto you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And then we're going to get to this little beauty here in verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them underneath your feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Right? So in this exact same passage where Jesus says, uh, judge not lest you be judged, uh, he's also saying that there's going to be some people and he's going to be likening likening them to dogs and pigs And it just seems like an incredibly judgmental thing for Jesus to say. So what is he talking about in this passage? Uh, Number one, he is not talking about uh, uh, affirming moral relativity, right? This is one of the ways we, 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 we take this passage all the time. He's not affirming some sort of relative view of truth here. He's not saying that we need to stop discerning between truth and error and between right and between wrong. And it seems kind of ridiculous to have to say that, but I mean, that's how we think a lot today. Relativism is this idea 
that moral truth is not determined by an objective absolute God, but it is subjectively determined uh, by the individual and discerned in the context of social, historic, or personal circumstances. And it's not exactly a minority opinion, right? Like the Gallup poll back, I think about seven years ago, came out with a study in which they said that the majority of America actually believes that this is true. 67% of Americans that were polled believe that there are literally no moral absolutes uh, or no objective moral religious truth. And we're not talking about like, okay, there's some objective truth, some moral absolutes, and some things that are just matters of preference. We're saying, no, 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 there's none in existence whatsoever. Um, and, and, it, and it's all subjectively determined by the individual. And by the way, it's not just a problem that's out there. Like 54% of people who identify themselves as born-again Christians agree with the exact same statement. Right? In other words, it's, it's, it's not just a problem outside of these walls. Like there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of debate about where authority comes from, where moral authority and truth actually comes from. And part of the problem is that relativism has a way of sneaking into our conversations in very, very subtle forms, Right? I mean, just take the, take the topic of, of tolerance, for example. Like, for, for tolerance, like, it, it's a beautiful word, right? I, I use it in sermons a number of different times, and it's one of our highest cultural values today. Uh, it's not a word that many of us are going to disagree with, as long as it means uh, that we are to acknowledge each other's differences and opinions and thoughts and the ways that we are thinking. Uh, we need to uh, tolerate those differences and then be loving to all people regardless of those differences. But the problem is that it's not exactly what we, how we mean it when we talk about it today. When we talk about it today, it often means a full acceptance of various beliefs, even conflicting ones, as equally valid and true. And, of course, that's where we're going to have some tension there. We do the exact same thing when we talk about religious pluralism. You drive around town, and you're going to see bumper stickers that say coexist. It's going to be the mantra of the Unitarian Church. You're going to see these things. and are going to have symbols of all the different world religions. You're going to be going, oh, yeah, we need to coexist. That's right. And, and not many people are going to be disagreeing with that mantra. However, what it's come to mean is that all religions are equally valid and simply different paths to the exact same God. And, of course, that's, that's where we're going to have some tension and some disagreement in that matter, right? I'll never forget a number of years ago I was working at uh, the Thanksgiving Square. Uh, I was working for a guy who kind of owned and, and ran that whole thing. Thanksgiving, have you guys ever been there downtown? Thanksgiving Tower, Thanksgiving Square, major, anyway, beautiful park downtown. I was working for them, and they're doing this event uh, that was out at the park. And um, uh, there was a Unitarian speaker, and he was bringing all kinds of religious leaders in town together to do this Unitarian message and everything. And I remember get, going out there, and we were uh, just kind of listening to the speaker, and I was standing next to this Muslim leader next to me. And all of a sudden, in the middle of his talk, he, he leaned over to me, and he goes, he goes, don't you hate it when they pretend that our distinctives don't matter and that we're not all looking around at each other wanting to convert each other? <laughs> and, I, and I looked at him, and I was like, what did you just say? He's like, don't you hate it when they pretend like we're not all just looking around wanting to convert each other? And I was like, you want to convert me? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, that's awesome. I want to convert you too. Like, right? Right, because, because the distinctives matter, right? Like, the distinctives matter. Like, 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 that's what we understand. Similarities in moral code does not mean that every world religion is the exact same thing. I've never heard a Jewish rabbi say, oh, you're a Muslim. That's fantastic. Okay, we're on the exact same page. Like, I've never heard a Muslim be like, oh, you're a Christian. Fantastic. Welcome to the brotherhood. Like, I, like we're on the exact same page. I've never talked to a, Mu- a Mormon at my front door and said, oh, okay, you're, you're already a Christian. Great. We're, we've got nothing else to talk about, right? 
Like people who understand their faith uh, know that they contradict each other and they're not even close to the exact same thing. So he's not saying that we need to start, that we need to turn off our brains and stop discerning between truth and error and things that are contradicting each other over and over again. He's also not saying that we need to avoid correction and rebuke all the time, right? Uh, and it, again, it seems kind of silly to have to actually make these qualifications, but I came across this hilarious meme the other day. I think it perfectly illustrates the tension that we have when we talk about a subject matter kind of like this. Uh, this meme comes up, and he, it, it says, You call yourself a Christian, but Jesus wasn't a snob who judged people for their imperfections. You may want to go get your Bible out and check on that. Right? I remember reading that, and I was like, what? I was like, okay, let's go do that, right? So Matthew chapter 4, like, the very first message Jesus preaches is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, Right? The very first thing Jesus says is repent, meaning literally turn, feel remorse, feel regret for some wrongdoing in your life. Turn around from where you are and turn to something brand new. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew 22, Jesus is speaking to a group of Sadducees, and he bluntly says you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. Like Matthew 16, 23, he calls Peter Satan. And he says, get behind me, Satan, speaking to Peter. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. To the Pharisees, he calls them whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, it's full of bones of the dead. John 7, 7, the world hates me because I testify about its works, that they're evil. Even here in verse 6, he's referring to some people um, indirectly as dogs and pigs because they do not understand or value uh, the things of God. And so evidently, Jesus spent a lot of his time uh, uh, rebuking our imperfections, right? And some of us are kind of going, okay, well, that's fine for Jesus to do because he was actually the son of God and he was in a position to do that. But the problem is that he actually passes those, those, same, uh, th- th- those same things on to us. Like Ephesians 5, 11, Paul's going to say, rebuke the works of darkness. Like, don't just be silent about it, but rebuke the works of darkness. Galatians 6, 1 is going to say, like, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and with instruction. So it's not just exhorting and encouragement to just, hey, high five over here, but reprove and rebuke with great patience and with instruction. Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 13, 6, it's actually the very definition of love. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. In other words, it's able to discern the difference between what is true and what is false, between what is good and what is evil, and true love does not rejoice in things that are evil. I mean, William Dershowitz in an article, uh, and I don't, I don't know if he's a believer or not, but in an article for the Chronicle of Higher Education, he talked about the problem that this creates in the context of developing deep and meaningful, meaningful friendships today. He said, concerning the moral content of classical friendship, its commitment to virtue and the mutual improvement has been lost. We've stopped believing that a friend's highest purpose is to point us to the good by offering moral advice and some correction. Instead, we practice the non-judgmental friendship of unconditional acceptance and support. We seem to be terribly fragile now. A friend fulfills their duty only by taking our side, validating our feelings, supporting our decisions, and helping us to feel good about ourselves. So we stop telling the truth. We tell white lies. We make excuses when a friend does something wrong and do whatever we can to help the boat to help keep the boat steady. We're busy people, and as a result, we choose friendships that are fun and friction-free. 
Church, it's just not what Jesus is getting after in this passage. When he says, judge not lest you be judged, it has nothing to do with minimizing or avoiding truth. What he's saying is how you choose to handle the truth is everything. It's not about running from the truth, minimizing it, avoiding conflict in anything. What he's saying is how you choose to handle what I've given to you is true. That's the point that I'm concerned about. In fact, in verse 5, it kind of sounds like he's expecting you to engage in these tough conversations. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you're going to see clearly how to remove the speck from your brother's eye. In other words, it's a strategic passage about how to go about doing it actually pretty well. So here it is, church. Like, like you may be exactly right in the way that you view the world. Like you may be right in the, in, the, in the things that you're seeing politically, in the things that you're th- seeing socially. And the things that you're seeing interpersonally with at home or with friendships around you or anything like that. And, and your own mom or dad or your, your friend or your spouse or, or your boss. Like they may be actually right about the things that they're seeing in your life too. But what Jesus is saying is the way that you choose to communicate that is everything when it comes to the goal of correction. Webster defines being judgmental as having or displaying an excessively critical point of view. And that's what it is, right? It's, 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 a, it's a matter of being what's excessive, what's, what, what's beyond normal, what's beyond healthy. It's an excessively critical point of view. And that's what Jesus is going after in this passage. He's going to give us two principles here that are going to help us uh, be people that communicate truth really, really well. Uh, the first one's very simple. Uh, I'm going to put it like this. Don't fixate on the fruit and forget about the root. Um, the original Greek, it rhymes like that. It's all good, so... Don't fixate on the fruit and forget about the root. It's what he's saying in verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they're going to trample them under their feet, and they're going to turn and tear you to pieces. In other words, stop trying to force sacred things on people that do not value sacred things. Right? Like, stop trying to force sacred values on people that don't hold sacred values. Right? It's, it's, it's kind of like spending all kinds of time and money on a one-year-old at Christmas when all they want is a box and some paper, right? I, uh, you did this, right, when your kid was one. I, I remember when Caleb was one years old. I mean, the grandparents bought all these fancy things, and, and he could care less about anything that was inside those boxes. All he wanted was the paper and the box, right? That's exactly what he's saying. Don't impose sacred values on people that don't care for the sacred. Don't fixate on the fruit of these things and forget about the root of the problem. And Paul's going to be talking about what the root of that problem is. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, he's going to put it like this. He's going to say, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they never glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts became darkened. In other words, even though God had clearly made himself known, our hearts have become darkened and we, to the point where we don't even acknowledge him as God or even give him glory as God. I love how Matt Chandler illustrated this, but he's kind of laughing at how ridiculous it is every time that, that Shaq would dunk on somebody who's half his size and like beat his chest running down the court and he'd just be like showing up the guy and stuff like that. I mean, Shaq is seven foot three, 350 pounds and athletic. 
And I promise you, like, he had nothing to do with being seven foot three, 350 pounds. Like, that was all God who made him that way. And he's saying it's kind of ridiculous that for any of us to boast in these things that God has done and, and God has given us. And exactly what Romans is saying that we do all the time. Like, he's made himself known, uh, but we've given him no glory. He's made himself known, but we don't even acknowledge him as God. He has made himself known, but he has no authority in our lives. So when it comes to morality, like, God is not the ultimate authority. I'm the ultimate authority. So when it comes to these things, like it's not God who's the ultimate authority in my life. It's, it's culture. It's public opinion. It's history that is my authority. And there's a million other authorities before God. It's why Time Magazine can write an, argue, can, can write an article and say, hey, Christian, you need to think about reevaluating your most cherished beliefs about sexuality because times are changing. Literal article in Time Magazine. Christian, you need to reevaluate your most sacred beliefs about sexuality because times are changing. And church, here's the reality. Like, times are the ultimate authority. Right? Like, that's what, that's what we're saying here. That's the ultimate authority. A few years back, uh, there's a popular Hollywood therapist posted an article online that just went absolutely gangbusters viral here. And here's what, here's what she said. She said, sexual liberation is spiritual liberation. Right, meaning no rules, just right. Like we're not talking about like having a, a healthy, thriving sexual relationship with your spouse in the context of marriage. Uh, her, her comment was, "Sexual liberation is spiritual liberation. Sex is good for the body, the mind, and the soul. Your soul cannot be free if your body's in chains. If your body's in chains, your soul cannot be free. They're interconnected. So I agree that sexual freedom is the most important thing that anyone can pursue." And church, I'm not, talk, I'm not kidding you. Like, we're, we're talking about tens of thousands of likes, right? Thousands of people sharing it. Like the entire uh, internet just uh, like applauding this kind of thing. Church, like when authority has been turned around, there's a problem with our roots, right? Like when God is no longer seen as God, when God is no longer glorified as God, like there's a problem with our roots going on. Right? Well, like when, when he's told us how to flourish in the context of these human relationships and we could care less, like there's a problem going on with our roots. Like, like, like when, when he's created us in his image and we're fine killing babies in the womb and degrading adults on the outside, like there's a problem with our roots going on. Like when one out of four women have the courage to report that they're victims of sexual violence and many people don't want to listen, like there's a problem with our roots, Right? Like, like when 80% of men report that we have intentionally looked at pornography in the past four weeks uh, and, and we don't even care about it, like there's a problem going on with our roots when the majority of our marriages are going to dissolve and end in divorce, like there's a problem going on with our roots, church. And that's exactly what Jesus is getting after in this passage. He's saying don't just look at the fruit of what's going on on the surface here, but you've got to dig down deep, and I want you to start caring about the roots. Because like, what we're seeing here is a root problem. I'll never forget a number of years ago... Um, there's a couple that asked me to marry him, and we've become really, really good friends since then. And it was a fun kind of first dynamic. We didn't know each other at the time, and they kind of barely went to the church at that time. But they sent me this email, and they said, hey, we've been having a hard time finding somebody who's willing to marry us. And I was like, what's the problem? And they just they kind of laid it out on the line. They're like, look, we, are you going to be one of those pastors who's going to make us stop living together and stop sleeping together for you to marry us? Like, that's what they led with. And I was like, well... Uh, we don't even know each other at this point, so why don't we go to dinner and let's just talk. I want to get to know you and let's, let's talk about this situation. Church, I hope you hear me. Like, my heart is always to have the conversation, right? But my heart is to always, always, always have the conversation, prolong the conversation, and to go further than just these externals. And we sit down at the dinner table and we're talking, getting to know each other a bit. And finally, they kind of circle back around and they say, okay, are you going to be one of these pastors that's going to make us stop living together and stop sleeping together? 
And my answer to them was the exact same one that I've had a number of times before. I said, I, 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 said, I go, to be honest with you, I, I could care less about forcing you into some sort of a sexual purity because I've told you to do that. The thing that I'm concerned about um, is the fact that you don't care to follow the God that you say that you love. Like, I could care less about forcing some sort of morality on you because I told you to do something. The thing that concerns me is the fact that, that you don't know exactly what you believe about God, and I'd love to talk to you about those kinds of things. And you say that you are a follower of Christ, yet he, he, he clearly has little to no authority in your life, especially when it comes to the most meaningful and powerful and important human relationship that you're ever going to have in your entire life. And some reason, like, what he says on these matters is not important to you. That's the thing that I want to talk about. And because if you don't have these questions figured out, if, if, if you have not addressed these kinds of questions, then, then you're not going to have a God-glorifying marriage, which you're telling me that you actually want to have in your relationship. And we ended up having an incredible conversation there. And believe it or not, like they were intrigued. Somebody's going to tell us the truth? Like someone's not going to run from, not, someone's not going to just bow and just be passive about this. Someone's going to tell me the truth, but they're going to do it in a way that's going to help me and, and care about who I am? Church, I'm telling you, like we spent the next six weeks exploring together the roots and the basics of the gospel as a picture for what their marriage should look like and as a picture for how they are to love one another in the context of this relationship. And in a few weeks late, in a few weeks into it, he actually came to faith. A week after that, they came back and said, you know what, we've decided that we're going to stop sleeping together until the wedding. And it's not because you told us, and it's not because you forced us, it's because God has done a genuine work within my soul. My heart is inclined to honor him, and that's exactly what we want to do with our lives and with our marriage. Church, do not fixate on the fruit and forget about the root. Right? Do not fixate on just the externals that you forget about what's really going on inside. I can see that you're angry, but the thing that I want to know about is why you're angry. Like, I can see that you're ticked off about some things, but instead of just responding in the exact same anger which I'm receiving, I'm going to be patient and I'm going to be kind and I'm going to go a little bit further because I want to figure out, like, what's going on behind this anger. Like, I can see that you've just given up in this relationship, and instead of just also giving up and giving you back uh, what you've given to me, like, I want to go a little step further, I want to be patient, I want to be understanding, and I want to know why you've chosen to give up inside this relationship. Like, I, I, I can see that you've just stopped trying and everything. I want to know why, I want to know what's going on inside of your heart. To the, to the blogger who thinks that Jesus never cared about our imperfections, um, I, I disagree, but I appreciate you, and I, and I can completely agree that Jesus never left people feeling condemned. However, he actually said these kinds of things, but the good news of the gospel is he did something about those imperfections. Right? I'm not just going to get up there and just rip that person for being wrong and put him in his place here because I don't just care about the fruit. I care about the roots. Church, the goal of correction, the goal of any kind of reform here is not just moral character. It's not just moral reform. The goal is not to help your lying friend stop lying. Like the goal is not to help your, 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 your sexually promiscuous friend just all of a sudden become clean. The goal is to help people know and love Jesus in such a way that God changes their heart and changes their soul so that they have a genuine desire to then go and follow him. Don't just fixate on the fruit so much that you forget about the roots. Does that make sense? You with me? Can we get an amen? Can we get, okay, we were on that one. just gave myself an amen there. I apologize. Second thing he says here is don't be a hypocrite. Examine yourself first. Don't be a hypocrite. Examine yourself first. I went off on this last week, church, and I believe if we would do this, it would solve an unbelievable amount of our problems. Do not be a hypocrite. Examine yourself first. That is verse 5. You hypocrite. 
First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you're going to see how clearly, clearly how to remove the speck from your brother's eye. First, take the giant two-by-four log that is in your own eye, and then you're going to be able to see clearly enough so that you can remove the little tiny speck that you're seeing in your friend or your spouse or your neighbor, your coworker, your boss, or whatever it may be. It's the people who berate, berate other people for their sexual promiscuity when they're looking at porn every single night. It's when you blast your spouse over and over again for all of their selfish ways, and you've never taken the time to consider where you're selfish in your relationship to. It's when you love calling other people out when they're wrong, but no one can do the exact same thing with you and tell you that you're wrong. That's what he's talking about. Don't be a hypocrite. Examine yourself first and remove that giant two-by-four in your own eye, and then you can go talk to your friend and person that you love. Now, the reason that he prescribes this self-examination, I think, is pretty fascinating. What he says is when you take the time to examine yourself first, then you're going to be able to see clearly how you can best remove the speck from your brother's eye. Church, have you ever, um, have you ever confronted someone about a situation only to realize later on that you just completely butchered it and screwed it all up because you did it all wrong? Like, have you ever kind of evaluated a situation and you're like, okay, I really feel like that was right about that, but the way that you went about it just completely messed it up, and then all of a sudden you're fighting about the way that you're doing it rather than what, what was the original problem. Like, I'll never forget, um, it happens all the time. Back in at Texas A&M, I remember there was a pro-life group that came on campus, and I am pro-life, obviously. You've heard that about me and stuff, I think that. Uh, anyway, they came on campus, and... Um, the way that they went about their protesting was, was absolutely horrific, in my opinion. Signs, you're a murderer, you're a murderer. They were on campus, they were in front of the abortion clinic, and you're a murderer. Abortion is murder, 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 murder. But not only that, they had the most graphic and detailed photos that you can possibly imagine. And we're talking about, they took, they took this blood-like substance and, and, and these things that looked like guts, and they covered their bodies in these things and just... And they brought it out on campus, and they were, like, throwing it all over the place, and they were covered in this, in this substance and just these horribly graphic pictures and calling, yelling and screaming, calling everyone murderers, and people were fighting with them and that, that and the other. It was just this horrific scene. And as a pro-life person, I remember sitting there going, I want nothing to do with those people. Right? Like what Jesus is saying is that there's something about self-examination here that actually helps you see the entire situation more clearly so that you don't always end with condemnation. And here's why. It's because when I get in a rhythm of regular self-examination, when I come before the Lord every day and I honestly confess what's true inside of my life, I mean, I love saying this, like Martin Luther, a monk, one of the great reformers of our faith, would, would famously spend over an hour or so every day in simple confession. I don't know what monks have to confess for over an hour a day, but he would go before the Lord and he would evaluate his life in light of God's holiness, and God, in light of God's perfect holy word, not in light of how I compare to my friend, how I compare to my family, how I compare to the rest of the world and my boss and my coworkers, but like when you honestly come before God and you evaluate your life in light of holiness, in light of God's perfect word, uh, if you're being really, really honest about things, like there's going to be a long list of things that you need to be confessing before him. Like I'm going to come before him and I'm going to start confessing like every single white lie that I've told. 
I'm going to be confessing like every time that I coveted something that was not my own. I, I'm going to be confessing every time I envied someone else and, and wanted the things that they, they wanted. I'm going to be confessing every lustful thought that I ever had. I'm going to be confessing every greedy decision and every selfish choice and every outburst of anger. And, and if I'm being really, really honest, it's probably going to take a little bit of time. But as you do that, here's what the gospel is going to remind you of. The gospel is going to remind you that even when I was that guilty, like even though that my list is that long just today, like even though like I, I am in that place and horribly separated from a holy and perfect God, the way that Jesus confronted my sin was by going to the cross so that the penalty of my sin could be paid and that I might receive grace. So when Jesus says here in this passage, do not judge lest you be judged, for in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, church. That is the measure by which we have been judged. So it's not that he's just forgotten our sin and just chosen to overlook it. Like, we've got to stop thinking like that. It's not just that he, he's saying, okay, you're a sinner, and just I'm just forgetting about it at all. Like, he has confronted our sin head on. He is not just love. He is perfectly holy, and he is perfectly just. And because he is holy, he can have nothing to do with sin. And because he's just, our sin has to be judged. But he is also love, right? And because he's loved, the way that he chose to judge our sin was by laying down his life and absorbing the penalty of sin upon himself so that we might know his grace. John's going to put it like this. He's going to say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Church, in other words, even when he was betrayed and even when he was abandoned and even when he was maligned and abused and even when he was spit on and sinned against, the goal was never guilt. The goal was always grace. Church, and like when the goal is always grace, I promise you, it changes the way that you and I handle truth. It's exactly what we see Jesus do all throughout his ministry. John chapter 8. Jesus is, is dealing with a woman who's caught in the middle of adultery. You remember how this whole story goes down? Like the religious leaders and like everybody, they, they found this woman and they only go grab the woman because they're all the, she's the only one that they care about. There's two people it, it takes to commit adultery, I've heard. They only bring the woman out there. And they bring her before Jesus, and they want to catch him in a trap, and they say, okay, Jesus, we've caught this woman in adultery, and the law says that we get to now stone her to death. What do you say that we get to do? And you remember how Jesus handles this? I mean, he just, he just bends down, and he starts, like, riding in the dirt. And then he comes back up, and he says, let, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And he goes back down, and he starts riding in the dirt. And I can only imagine what he's riding in that dirt. I always kind of speculate and wonder if he's just, like, kind of riding out, hey, Peter, Here's what you do. Like, hey, John, uh, here's, here's your stuff. Hey, Sally, like, here's, here's your stuff here. And one by one, like, everybody starts to walk away, and it's just Jesus and this woman, and he turns to her and he says, is there no one here to condemn you? Then neither do I. Go and sin no more. And you hear what he said at the very end? Like, he's not running from it. He's calling it exactly what it is. Go and sin no more. Like the goal, because the goal is never just guilt, the goal is always grace. It's exactly what he does all throughout his ministry. Zacchaeus is the exact same thing. Luke chapter 19. You remember the story? It's, it's my son Caleb's favorite story because of the wee little man who climbs a tree, right? It's just one of these awesome little stories. But what we know about Zacchaeus is that he was a tax collector. Like he was one of the most despised people in culture because the way that he made his money was, was by ripping other people off. 
and he got word that Jesus was coming to town. And, of course, he, he like everyone else, wanted to, wanted to see who this Jesus was. And Jesus is coming down the street. And so Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and he climbs up in the tree in order to get a good, good view of Jesus. And Jesus sees him up in the tree, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down out of the tree. I'm going and staying at your house tonight. And remember how everybody responds to that? Like, everybody's ticked off. Jesus, you don't do that. Like, when you go and you, you, you spend time in somebody's home, you have a meal with them, you spend the night with them, like, what you're doing is you're affirming them as a person. Like, you don't affirm someone like Zacchaeus. It's not what you do. And Jesus looks at me and says, Zacchaeus, I want you to come down out of the tree because I'm going to your house. We're going to eat at your house. I'm going to stay at your house. I'm affirming you. And Zacchaeus looks at Jesus, and immediately in that moment, like, even before the whole night has taken place, he immediately breaks down in repentance. He says this in, in chapter 19, verse 8. He says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay it back four times the amount. Church is truth and grace working side by side, always. It's the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. And it's exactly what self-examination helps us remember that when I was also sinful and deserving of wrath, like when I was in the exact same place, different sins as Zacchaeus, God gave me grace instead. Like when I was also doing the exact same thing, sometimes even more than the adulterous woman that was caught in sin right then and there, like in the middle of that place, God said, go and sin no more. Does no one condemn you? Go and sin no more. Church, there's a lot of people that are very, very concerned that a narrow view of truth will always lead to arrogance and division. Probably because it's how it plays out a lot of times, right? Here it is, church. Truth can always be narrow if grace is incredibly wide. Do you hear me on that? Truth can be narrow if grace is incredibly wide. Students, you need to hear me on this. Like, you don't have to run from truth. You don't have to run from truth. You don't have to avoid it at all costs, and you don't have to pretend that it doesn't exist. Like, truth can be narrow if grace is incredibly wide. I'll never forget a number of years ago, I was, uh, I was out in Oaklawn with a group of men in the gay community, and they were asking me a lot of questions. And um, a number of them had become friends at that time, and and uh, one of the guys piped up, and he goes, Aaron, how in the world would you feel if every time you walked into the church, like all you heard was about how, how sinful you were and how condemned you were and that you were always just, you're always a sinner? Like how would you feel if every time you walked into the church, you, just, you were always made to feel like you were just this gross, disgusting sinner? And I looked at him, and I said, all due respect, like that's not just your problem. Like that's my problem too. Like every single time I come into the church, like every single time from the time I was a little child to the time I am now, like I'm always, always, always confronted with the realities of my sin against the holy God. Like when I was a teenager, like it was all I could think about, right? All I wanted were all these different things that I needed to wait for marriage until I go and do. Like, I, I, that was my life. Every single time I walk into the church, I'm confronted with these realities that my life has always fallen short of the glory of a holy God, yet in the middle of that place, God gave me grace and said, Jesus confronted the realities of my sin by laying down his life and absorbing the penalty of my sin that I might be a recipient of God's grace. So the reality is that that is my experience every single time. I'm confronted with the realities of truth, but, but, but truth is not complete until grace is received. Are you with me? It's not just ending in condemnation. There's grace on the end of that, uh, there's grace on the end of that message. I love the way that Tim Keller put this in his book, Reasons for God. He said, one of the biggest paradoxes in history was that at the beginning of the early church, the Greeks and the Romans had some of the most inclusive and relativistic religions in the world. Everyone have your own God. No big deal. Whatever God you choose, there's thousands of them. They're all equal. 
And that was their way, and it seemed so inclusive, yet the world was more divided and prejudiced than ever before. Then along come the Christians, and they say that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and it seems incredibly exclusive, yet the fact of history is that Christians created the most inclusive, peace-filled, loving communities in, in history at that time. Anyone else grow up in a culture at church? Uh, I, think, I, I think I'm probably alone on this, but grow up in a church culture where you did love feasts? <laughs> Anybody else? We call it, they're essentially potlucks. And... Um, the church tradition I grew up in, we called them love feasts. It's a word that was adopted from the early church. It's what they called their early potlucks. It was a love feast. And the reason it was a love feast is because people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, people from every caste system and every socioeconomic group and every race and every kind of cultural difference among them would gather together in one and they would share a meal in the context of love. And what happened is these Christians were gathering over and over again, and they would do this in a world that did not value diversity, that did not value these kinds of things, and in a world that was incredibly segregated. I mean, the rich and the poor, and the young and the old, and the the Jews and the Gentiles, and white, black, brown, red, and yellow, and everything in between, like every single caste system, men and women, non-believers would see their love for one another and their unity within the church, and the church just exploded in those first couple centuries. I want to read this snippet. This is from Aristides' Apology. And um, Aristides was essentially a Roman second century spy, and he would always rep- report to uh, the Roman emperor, I think his name was Hadrian in Athens at the time, about what was going on in, in the first century church. And this, like, this is the testimony of the first century church. It's the Christians, O emperor, who have sought and found the truth he's writing. This is from a non-believing perspective. We have realized it from their writings. They are closer to the truth and to a right understanding than all other people, for they acknowledge God. They worship no other God. They have his commandments imprinted on their hearts. They observe them because they live in hope and expectation of the coming age of the world. They do not commit adultery. They do not live in fornication. They speak no untruth. They do not covet what belongs to others. They speak gently to those who oppress them. And in this way, they make them their friends. It has become their passion to do good to their enemies. Any male or female servants or dependents whom individuals among them have, they persuade to become Christians because of the love that they feel towards them. If they do become Christians, they are brothers to them without even discrimination. This, O emperor, is the rule of the life of the Christians, and this is their manner of life. Church, that's narrow truth and wide, wide, wide grace. What Jesus is saying is how we handle this is everything. Church, don't, don't, don't fixate on the fruit that we forget about. The root. There's so much more than what's going on on the surface. Don't fixate on the fruit that we forget about the roots. Examine ourselves first that we'll be able to see the entire picture that I was also in that exact same boat. Lost and completely dead in my sins. Doing the exact same things, if not worse, at different times. And in the middle of that place, the way that Jesus came and confronted my sin was by first calling it out, naming it for what it is, and then by going to the cross on purpose giving his life so that he could pay the penalty of my sin and that I might be a recipient of God's grace. Church, the goal was never just guilt. It was always grace. May be the same with us.